I'm going to read uh, Ezekiel chapter 18 tonight. Verse 1. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. You hold all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul of sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife, approach a woman during her, her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes, my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and he will surely live, declares the Lord God. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and does who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he has committed, and observing does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit a robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor, does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. He will not die for the father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteous of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and observes all the statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin, which he has committed, for them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he is considered and turned away from all his transgression which he has committed, he shall surely live. 
he shall not die. But the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed. Make yourself a new heart, a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore repent and live. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are our Father which art in heaven by virtue of the mercy of Christ your Son, our Savior. And I pray now, Heavenly Father, that you would have mercy upon me, give me the ability to rightly divide this word, that it would bring you glory, benefit your children. May all of us here gathered tonight have the requisite eyes to see and ears to hear, both law and gospel. May we see that you are just God, but you are an infinitely merciful God in Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is what we've been finding in the book of Ezekiel. I think this is why I took a couple of weeks break. This is a heavy book. And um, I, I love to prepare sermons and studies. I, 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 I love to study uh, God's Word. And so even when I get a little bit overwhelmed, and, and the book has been somewhat overwhelming to me, and, I, and um, though I do love it, it's a very heavy book. Um, you, you, when you're dealing with the prophets, here's a major prophet, even the, the minor prophets certainly as well, there's lots of sin, lots of judgment, lots of warning. But as I mentioned in my pastoral prayer, almost every time you hear God rebuking the people or chastising the people or threatening the people, there'll be somewhere in that chapter a, a, a thread of mercy. And you see it at the very end of the chapter. He, he's rebuking the, his children all the way through the chapter. I think you hit like verse, I don't know, what is it, 28, something like that. In the last verse... Four verses are repent and live, essentially. Um, you find that it's, it's very frequent that God combines those two things, the, 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 both the warning and then the invitation to um, re- repent. We, we, that's what we're looking at. You remember last week, I'm taking chapter 18 in two parts. Last week, we basically unpacked verse 2 and verse 25. Verse 2 and verse 25 um, essentially represent, and there's another verse there too, after verse 25. They essentially represent the accusation of God's people against God. And you remember, it's put in proverbial form in verse 20, in verse 2. And the children of Israel are saying to God, and they're accusing, they're accusing their parents, but behind their parents are accusing God. They're saying, they're saying, why, why do the, the fathers eat, or the parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? And what they're getting at is they're saying to God, our parents sinned against you and you're punishing us by sending us off into Babylonian captivity. Well, God, to be fair, God did send the parents off to Babylonian captivity as well. You remember we said sometimes these, um, these proverbs, these complaints against God, they hold a kernel of truth. Their parents did sin against God. What they were not recognizing, these people, these Israelites, these church members who are saying, well, you're punishing God, the innocent. We're the innocent. Our parents are the guilty. You should have punished our parents and not us. Yes, the parents are guilty. And what they're not 
seeing is that they also are guilty. They're, they're claiming that God is not just by punishing the innocent. If God truly did punish the innocent, he, he would be unjust. But God, it, it is not possible for God to be unjust. So the people of God complain against their parents and they complain against God. And they accuse God of wrongdoing. So here the sinner is saying to God, you are sinning. And then in verse 25, I think it's verse 25, in, a, in one place after that, they become more bold in their accusation against God. So they don't put it in a proverbial form. They say it outright. Uh, our ways, our word is right. Your ways and your word is not right. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. This is Isaiah, what is it, chapter 5? I think chapter 5, maybe chapter 1. I can't remember which. There's going to come a day when people call what God calls good, they're going to call evil. What God says is evil, they're going to call good. There are people that say, I am a Christian. They will look you right in the face when you're reading something. Well, the Bible says this about males and females. The Bible says this about marriage. The Bible says this about who can get married and who can not get You could be reading it, and they could say, no, that's not right. <laughs> what do you mean it's not right? God is right. He, 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 he said it. No, right there, that's not right. That's exactly what they're saying. They're looking at God in the face when Ezekiel is preaching. They're going, no, that's not right. We're right, God is wrong. There's nothing new under the sun. The writer to the book of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, but I, I won't be dogmatic. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, that's called the evil heart of unbelief. It's in the Old Testament people of God. It's in the New Testament people of God. So it's the, these people are in the, the Old Testament household of faith. We'll call it the church. They're in the church. But what's going on is they're essentially unbelievers. They say they believe, but they prove that they're unbelievers by their hatred of God. And they prove they hate God by hating God's word. And, and they prove that they hate God by saying, God, you are a sinner and we are not. And that's the evil heart of unbelief. And the writer to the Hebrews t- says to the New Testament church, be careful and guard yourself against the evil heart of unbelief. And it's very easy to do. They're in a painful situation. They're in a crucible. They're in Babylonian captivity. They're slaves. Their flesh is being tempted constantly to to do what Job's wife said to Job, curse God and die. Just curse God and die. God has not dealt you a fair hand. How many of us, every once in a while, might be tempted to think, I don't think God is dealing me a fair hand. I I myself don't think that way anymore. There were times in my early Christian life that I did think things like that. But as God has worked with me over the years, even in the crucible, I, I don't think I accuse God like that. But it's, it's possible to do. And so they're accusing God. What we're doing tonight, we're going to take all of chapter 18 from 1 to the end, verse 32, and we're just going to treat it under one sermon. This is God's answer. So God's people accuse God of sinning and chapter 18 represents God's answer. Now I'm going to answer you back. And that's generally what goes on. And you remember how they're claiming that God is not just. In the, essentially, in verse 20, God says the soul that sins will die. He says it again in another place. But essentially, the entire rest of the chapter is God say, saying, I am not unjust. I do not punish the, the innocent. And if you sin, you will be punished. So when the people say, well, we're being punished and we're innocent, God is going to say, oh, no, if you are being punished, it's because you're a sinner. And so the entire chapter is God, would I use the word vindicating, for for lack of a better word that's coming to my mind, vindicating, or God's answering. 
and God is clearing his name. Now, that's what we're gonna, how we're going to deal with the rest of the chapter. This is, um, this is the father answering these grumbling, complaining children. But this is not the kiddo that's pitching a fit about wanting a candy bar for breakfast. These are grown children, and they're being bitter against the parent, against the father. And these are grown children who are accusing the father, God, of sin, and God answers them. This is stunning to me, and it should be stunning to all of us. They're grumbling against God. You're not giving us a fair treatment. You're this, you're that. Grumble, grumble. The sinner is complaining against holy God for, not, for God not being right. And God says, okay, I'm going to take a whole chapter to answer to you. What do we call that? We call that grace. What does every sin deserve? Every sin. Like instantly it would deserve it. Death. Even raising an eyebrow of accusation against God. If God dealt with human beings in strict justice, if he did, it would be Genesis 3, 1 through 8, and there would be no Bible. That would be it. So if God was just strict justice, no grace, no mercy, no why will you die, there would be no Bible. These people would not be alive. And so we need to be careful when we grumble and think, God, you need to explain yourself. Even the fact that he gives the opportunity to express our displeasure and he doesn't instantly bring the sword of justice down, it speaks of grace and mercy. So he's going to answer. This passage represents the answer. Now, when he begins to answer, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean? So this is the Father, God, through the prophet saying to the people, imagine, now put yourself, if you've ever, if you were a child, you were, were children, and, and your father, you accuse the father of wrongdoing, and the father says something, to you, what did you mean when you said thus and so against me? Would you think things were going swimmingly if the conversation started like that? The authority figure that you've been railing against now comes into the room, as it were, and says to you, now what did you mean? When you said that about me, that, that's kind of the tone that this is going to take. So we have God is answering. Even in the answer, there is an implicit warning. Even the tone, when God says, what did you mean when you said this against me? Because the proverb is an evil, wicked proverb. And then he's going to say later, I swear, I take an oath. You will never use that again. So th- things are not looking up for the children of God. I'm going to argue that there's grace in here he does give the call to repent but when God comes and answers I would say this God has even when we think wow God just brought the hammer down he brought justice or he brought affliction or he brought discipline wow it seems so quick why did God just flash quick honestly I don't see that God is so long suffering years and years and years grumble, grumble, grumble idolatry, immorality theft, grumble, grumble accusations, you O God are not holy vindication, we O God are the holy holy ones and what does God do? and what do we learn here? there is an end to God's patience there is an end to the day of grace I'm very thankful that we live in the day of grace. The day of grace ends when either Jesus comes back or we die. But there is an end. So God will say, why will you die? Why will you die? Repent and live. 
turn from your sins and live. But that call ends the moment we die or the moment that God in Christ comes back. That ends. So the mercy of God is infinite for those who find mercy in Christ. But if those who don't come to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and they don't say, thou son of David, have mercy, there's going to come an end. And the end is going to be here when God says, now I'm going to speak and you're going to answer me. Um, so even with an earthly parent, if you have an earthly parent, and I know the analogy is not so, it's not very good, but it's the best. Even if you have the most long-suffering, the most patient parent, um, you, you would have um, an end to the patience. And so this is the father responding to his children. Now, unlike an earthly parent, an earthly parent could respond in sin to a sinful accusation the child may accuse the parent, the earthly parent of sin, and the child could be correct. <laughs> the, 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 the earthly child could say to the, the father, you have sinned, and the child could be correct. Or the earthly child could say to the, the father, you have sinned, and be incorrect. But the father could respond in sin, but not our heavenly father. They are wrong. When they accuse God, they are wrong. And when God responds, he is right. So... Some of us who are dads have tried to vindicate ourselves and sometimes we've been right in the content and perhaps not right in the, in the way that we expressed it, but not, not God. So he's, he says in verse 2, what do you mean by using this proverb against me? What do you mean when you use this proverb against me? God wants his children to know that he knows that they have been questioning, actually repudiating his government and his word against them. What do you mean when you said this against me? And, and essentially when he says with this question, they've been questioning him. And now God says kind of what he says to Job in Job verses 38, chapters 38 through 41. Okay, Job, you've had all of these questions. Why, 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 why? I'm a righteous man. Why, why, why? And chapter 38 comes and God says what? Oh, I have questions for you. And God says what in chapter 38 to 41? Oh, so were you there? Did you do this? Did you do that? In chapter 42 rolls around and Job says what? I am very sorry. <laughs> I am not God. I shouldn't have said anything. You are God. I'll shut my mouth and listen. God says to these children, going, why, why, why? Why are we, why are we getting punished? Why are we? And God says, okay, I have some questions for you. <laughs> Things are not looking up for them. When people accuse you or they try to bully you with bitter accusations, bitter complaining, they're trying to do, do just that. They're trying to bully you. They're trying to get their own way. We see it people to people. Kids bully parents, and I suppose parents can bully kids and so on. But they're trying to bully God. God, your ways are not right. But what we're seeing when God answers is God, unlike human beings, doesn't bully. <laughs> he, 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 these people are trying to put the fear of man into God. And they're professing believers. You can't put the fear of man into God. You can make Ezekiel afraid. You can make Daniel afraid. You can make Isaiah afraid. You can make Ezekiel want to die. Uh, there are tons of the prophets that think, you know what, after that sermon... I just want to go home and die. I just cannot even deal with this. But you can't bully God. And that's what they're trying to do with their bitter accusations. And God says, okay, I have some questions for you. You're never going to say this again. He says in verse 3, I swear, 
I swear upon my own name, you will never say this wicked proverb against me again. Things are not going as planned when God begins to answer. When he says, I swear you're never going to use this again, there's only two possibilities why they're never going to use it again. And the first possibility is the main part of the truth. The reason they are never going to accuse God of sin in a wicked proverb like this again is they're not going to be using proverbs anymore. They're not going to be using their voice anymore. What's going to happen? God's going to take away their life. That's a threat. You will never say this to me again. Remember Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4? God swears with an oath because they doubted God and they grumbled against God. God said, I'll swear by my name because there's no other name. I swear you will never enter my rest. I swear in my wrath you will never enter my rest. Beloved, I would much rather preach, repent, and live, but this is all in there. This is all in there. God tells the people, his children, enough is enough. Enough is enough. You're you're not going to use this proverb anymore. And you say, well, that's a threat. That's a threat. Is threat the highest motive to come to God in Christ? No, I would argue love is the highest motive to come to God in Christ. But God retains the right to, to threaten sinful people, even sinful children. So when we say there is an end to God's patience, there's also a an end to the time in which God will permit sinners to abuse him. And God essentially says, you, you won't do this forever. Now, the other possibility why they will no longer accuse God of being a sinner and themselves as being righteous is they'll repent. They'll accept the invitation at the very end. God threatens, 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 and then God says, isn't it better to repent of your sins and come to me and find life? And then in that way, the person would be beating one's breast saying, I am the sinner. God, forgive me. You are the holy one. You are the righteous one. So either they will no longer condemn God as a sinner and themselves as righteous because God will stop them by death or they'll be born again and they'll become lovers of God and vindicators of God and they'll condemn themselves, which is why they'll go to God in Christ. Those are the two possibilities. So he swears, he gives, he gives the answer, he gives the warning. We see it, he does it in verse 3 when he says, as I live, that's, that's oath language. He takes an oath. That's why I say, God is not pleased. God is not pleased that people are accusing him. We don't always see it. We can't see God rise up in anger. I, I lament so much for our poor country. Um, we, we say, God bless America. I pray that God would bless America. We provoke him to his face. And I could, God is just to say, as I live, you will never do this again. I swear by my name, you will not live like this before my face, which is what he's saying. Um, now, when he swears in his, his wrath that they'll stop accusing him, the interesting thing with this is, because we walk by faith and not by sight, we don't see God. We can't see him. He's invisible your spirit and Christ who has a physical body is in heaven sometimes we live as if God doesn't exist even a professing believer and God now is reminding his people um, I really am I really hear what you say against me I really think what you say against me I hear I I know what you think against me And, and he says essentially you'll give an account of your words 
We don't often think word sins are as bad as, say, action sins. Um, perhaps that would be a fun Sunday school. But what we're learning here is even word sins are sins. And when people accuse God of being in the wrong or sinner, and they as sinners in the right, he is offended with that. And then the next thing that we see is he asserts his, um, his sovereignty. Look in verse 3 and 4. That's an expression of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, we use that word in, in the Reformed Church. And I know people say, well, what about the free will of man? Let's put the free will of man aside. I put a little quote in there about the free will. You can think what I think about the free will of man based on Augustus Toplady. What we're looking at here is God's free will. And God says in verse 3 and verse 4, uh, here's my free will. I'm utterly sovereign. He said, all souls belong to me. The parent's soul belongs to me. The child's soul belongs to me. Everyone belongs to me. That's an expression of sovereignty. And when we say sovereignty, usually people get triggered and they think, well, you're just talking about election and predestination and, and reprobation. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about something much larger. God owns and governs everything that he creates and he creates everything. It's an expression. God is giving an expression. Remember, he's correcting these people. He's essentially saying, I am the, I am the utter Lord, the utter master. Everything I do is right and just and holy and good because I do it. And you cannot say anything in, to the contrary to me and live. Nothing. This is just... I remember Pastor Hobbs preached a sermon here in, in this pulpit before I came full time. I knew what he was referencing because Pastor Hobbs taught me Greek for the first year. He was referencing the death of his first wife and how his children watched that. He one time said in this pulpit, he said, God is so sovereign he can take your breath away. And I was probably the only guy knowing what he meant because he said when his first wife died, he said he was never the same after that. That's the sovereignty of God. God is so sovereign he owns everything. So God now begins his answer to his people saying, I am the sovereign Lord. And when we, when we receive that, what's a response to a God who says, I am, I am utter master. We're not talking president. We're not talking Congress. We're not talking earthly king or queen. I am utter sovereign God. I do everything that I want to do. Everything is according to my own counsel. Everything. What's the response that we should take? Fall down on our face. And, that, and, and, and this is in part what God wants to engender in his people. He says, I own everyone. I own your father. I own your mother. I own you. I own your wife. I own your kids. I own your grandkids. I am God. And when you rise up in accusation against me, you are wrong and I am right. Always. Now, can you not multiply the perplexing scenarios in life of all the horrific things that men do to other men? No doubt. Again, I'm reading a book that I, can't, I cannot put down. I cannot believe human beings do this to human beings. It's the Pacific War campaign, taking the Philippines, going into New Guinea. I can't even believe it. I cannot even believe people do this to other human beings. So God superintends all of this. Yes, how does that work? I don't have any idea, but he does. So I recognize that we can multiply perplexing situations, but God starts by saying, I am sovereign God. And like Nebuchadnezzar, God can take us to sovereignty class 101. And at the end of it, we will shut 
our mouths with any accusation against God. Could he not do it? Complain, complain, complain. You're not treating me fairly. You're not treating me fairly. You're not treating me fairly. Could God not take us to a place where we say, you're doing everything right. I'm very sorry. And that's where God took Nebuchadnezzar. After seven years, of, he took his mind away. Well, could God do that? God did do it. And he taught him a lesson. And Nebuchadnezzar was better by it. And we're better by it too. And so God says to his people, I, I'm, I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign God. And um, so this is what he is engendering in, in his people. And he's expressing that to us. Not only does he express his answer with a warning, uh, even with a, uh, an oath expressing his sovereignty. In verse 4, he's expressing his sovereign justice. So he's saying he's just. The soul that sins will die. Then he expresses his justice again in verse 20. The person who sins will die. Same, same idea. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteous of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. All of the other language of the, of the chapter leading up to the repentance section deals with that. God says, I'm just. Only sinners will be punished. Only sinners will die. If you're not a sinner, you won't die. If you are righteous, you will not die. That's what God is saying. So God answers back when they say, our parents were sinners and we are being punished. He said, no, only sinners will be punished. Only sinners will die. And then he sets out to prove it. And so he's going to contrast the righteous man and the non-righteous or the wicked person. And he deals with the righteous person before he deals with any kind of sons right away in verse, um, in verse 5. And what all he's doing is he's illustrating um, who a righteous person is and who an, a non-righteous or a wicked person is. And notice when he says what a righteous person looks like and what a non-righteous person looks like, what standard he's using. If you know your Bible, what's the standard for right and wrong that God lays over the person? What's the standard? It's the law of God. So the, the Christian that says, oh, we're not under law, I think it's a perversion of, of Romans chapter 6. You need to read your Bible and you need to go slower. The moral law is unchangeable. Ceremonial law is gone because Christ fulfills it. The judicial law, except the, the portion that deals with the moral law, that's gone with the doing away of the, the nation state of Israel. But the moral law is perpetual. We're going to be keeping the moral law, which is to love God and to love people in heaven. It's a reflection of God's, um, of God's character. And so God says to the people, okay, I'm going to show you how righteous I am, that I only punish sinners. Now let me show you what a sinner looks like, and what you, what, let me show you what a righteous person looks like. And he shows them the law of God. That's the usefulness of the law of God. And this is, this is why you see the use of the law of God and then repent. Implicit in that is repent and believe and live. It's the gospel. So he uses the law and then he preaches the gospel. We've talked about this ad nauseum. If you preach a gospel without a law, there's, there's no reason. There's no bad news. Where's the bad news? Where's the law? Where's the sinner? I don't need a savior if I'm not a sinner. And that's his point here. His point is, if you're righteous, you're going to live. If you're not righteous, you're going to die. And then he walks through the various things that we've looked at. The, the person that, that, that goes to um, lift up, lifts up his eye. He, sa- he does it positively and negatively. 
He says the righteous man practices justice and righteousness. He says essentially positive righteousness is he obeys my law. That's what he's getting at. And then he says negatively, a person that's not righteous or a person that is righteous will refrain from committing robbery, sexual immorality, all of those kinds of things. So the righteous man obeys the law and the righteous man, he does what the Bible requires and he, he, he abstains from doing that which God forbids. That's the righteous person. Now, he, he, he says to these people who say, our parents are sinners, we're not. Why are we being punished? And God says, no, no, no. Let me show you what a righteous person is. A righteous person loves my Bible, practices holiness, practices love, practices mercy, and refrains from all these other obnoxious things. What is he wanting these people to do? What is he, when he says, here's what a, a righteous man looks like, and then when he says, here's what a wicked man looks like. A wicked man doesn't walk according to the word of God. A wicked man is busy hating his neighbor, hating his parents, practicing sexual immorality, committing idolatry. That's what a wicked man looks like. What does he want these people to do? He wants the people to stop looking at their parents for about five minutes and stop accusing their parents for five minutes and stop accusing God for five minutes and then he wants them to take the law of God and look at it like a mirror is what he wants them to do. That's what God is saying. God says, I don't punish anyone that's a sinner. I've met a few people that have said to my face, I do not sin. And I think they they think they really mean that. And I am always kind of like, how do you say that? How can anybody with a pulse say they don't sin? I mean, if, how is this possible? Well, you're deaf, dumb, and blind in your sin. That's true. But even when I was a heathen, I knew that I was a little sinner. So I tend to think that most people that say they don't sin, there's something not, not quite working well. But God shows them the law. The law is that which shows us that we are sinners. And then essentially says over and over again, the soul that sins will die. And if you're not a sinner, you won't die. I've said many times, if you do not sin and you are righteous and you are holy, you don't need Jesus. Jesus only came for sinners. He only came for those people that are not righteous. If you're, Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. So the, the Pharisees were, so we're righteous. Okay, you don't need Jesus. But the problem is, when you're looking at the law honestly and faithfully and say, have I committed sexual immorality ever? And of course, the kids are saying to their parents, you're sexually immoral. You're an idolater. You're a Sabbath breaker. You're this, you're that. Let's just say for argument's sake that the kids are right, that their folks were sexually immoral, that their folks were idolatrous and Sabbath breakers and all of these bad things. Let's say they're right. Does that excuse them from their culpability before the law. No. No. Let's say the grown kid says, Dad, you are a drunk, and drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says that's exactly right. Then your father will die for his own sins. But let's say the kid now is a drunk, and God says to him, and you'll die for your sins. What about my father? We're not talking about your father. We're talking about you. My father's a fornicator. You're a fornicator. You see what God is saying. God takes it away from the parents. This is the problem with unbelief. It's always looky yonder, looky yonder, looky yonder. God says the law of God and he shoves it into their face and says, look at the law. 
Test yourself. Examine yourself. Be honest. I did an interview with a person not a Christian who was criticizing a Christian. And I said to the person, criticizing the Christian that needs criticizing doesn't excuse you from your culpability before God. Can we find goofy Christians all over the place? Does finding a goofy Christian or a Christian sinning excuse you of your culpability before a holy God for your sins? No. And that's what God is saying. And now God gets around to the very end. It's the section that I love. It perplexes a lot of people when God at the very end says, if you look at the end of chapter 18, look at 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? And then he says at the very end, therefore repent and live. Why will you die? I know there are people, we're Calvinists, we're Reformed, hyphen, hyphen, whatever. Faith comes by hearing, hear by the word of Christ, one of Calvin's favorite passages. I think sometimes people don't understand what Calvinists believe. That's Romans 10, 17. Um, God not only ordains the ends, the elect shall come to salvation, the, the, the elect will repent and the elect will believe, he ordains the ends, but he ordains the means. And that's what I think the disagreement is with our more Arminian-esque brothers and sisters. They think, well, if he's ordained the end, why do you tell them to repent and believe? Because he's ordained the ends to the means. How will God bring people, his elect ones, to repentance and faith in Christ and thus life? And how will he do it? Does he just blink his eyes? No, this is how he does it. He uses, he uses the law as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ, to show us our need. Jesus did this. Remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler said, hey, I'm pretty good. And then what did Jesus do? He did exactly what God's doing in Ezekiel 18. He says, here's the law of God. (laughs) You you, you didn't do it. And the guy is so blind. He says, yes, I've done all of these. No, no, no. Look again. The law of God, the law of God. And then you say, oh, no, I am the man. And now God says what? Why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'm a high Calvinist. I have no problem saying that. I say to everyone that I meet, I don't have the list of the elect. I have no idea who they are. God keeps the list. Anyone that repents, anyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, will he forgive anyone that comes to Christ? Yes. I can say that fully and freely. Jesus says in John chapter 6, no one that comes to me will I ever turn away. That's God's business. Our business is to be ubiquitous with the call. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes great pleasure when people turn and they're restored. Does God get glory in exacting justice on the, on the sinner? Yes, he does. But glory and pleasure are two different things. That's a Romans chapter 9. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he says, what? Turn and live. So even to this wicked people, you look at these grumbling, griping, bitter, unbelieving grown children accusing their parents accusing their God and what does God say to these people turn and live let go of your sin and live there is a place in the Bible I think it's Romans 2 Romans 3 I forget where which one it's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance yes there's the threats yes there's the danger of the law of God but what is he saying essentially if you turn to me all of your sin If you turn to me, all of your sin will be made white as snow. 
I'll throw all of your sin in the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west. Only turn and live. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.